Today we are busting the self-made myth, the final message in our series about the self-made myth. And as we bust out of it, God is seeking to bring us up into the God-blessed life. And um, for that, I'm remembering a story of Muhammad Ali. You know, at the height of his success, he named himself the greatest and why not? I mean, he had been the Olympic boxing champion. He was the three-time heavyweight champion of the world. And he was uh, on a jet airliner preparing for takeoff. And the flight attendant said, sir, you'll have to fasten your seatbelt. And Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And just like that, she said back, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> so he fastened up. <laughs> Good point. You know, <laughs> made me think of the song by R. Kelly, you know, I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. I love that song. But if that's ever going to come true for me, I'm going to need help. I can't do that by myself. If I'm going to live an elevated life, I'm going to need a source of elevation beyond myself. And that's what the scripture teaches. When it comes to busting through the self-made myth, God is the source of elevation. As creator in the Old Testament, as savior and sustainer in the New Testament in Jesus Christ, we are reminded from the beginning that God created humanity for greatness, image bearers of Almighty God. And, um, and as we are lifted in his image, then we are to discover that the key to greatness is not trying to do life without God, but trusting God to do life with us, in us. Trust God to be good. Get to know God as the one supreme absolute in life. That's the truth behind the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. God is the one supreme absolute holding all other possibilities in existence. And then as we see in the New Testament that God the word that was there in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. God, Christ, is now with us that we might trust him to lift us to the life that he promises, from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. God is absolutely great. God is absolutely good. God is absolutely trustworthy, generous, powerful. God is good, and we can trust him. But it's one thing to say that. It's easier to say that than it is to do it. And what we also discovered in the last two messages of our series is that there is an invisible force present in our culture and in our thinking that is all too ready to whisper into our ears or like plant parasites in our brains to eat away and give us reasons to eat away at evidence for faith, to give us reason not to trust God to be good. Not to trust God to be an elevation source in our lives. That other voices and other powers are at work to give us evidence, we call it, for our doubts, for our resentments, for our grudges, for our anger, and even our blaming God. We saw this in the story last week and the week before. I just want to remind us quickly, Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. The story tells us that man doesn't just blame the woman for giving him the fruit to eat. You know who he blames there? He blames God for giving him the woman. Genesis 3.12, 
When God asks, have you eaten what I have commanded you not to? Then what does he say? The man said, the woman you put here with me. (laughs) The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Notice this, the last person he holds responsible for the choice that he made was who? Himself. The very last person he holds responsible is himself. Second, he blames that gorgeous woman that he couldn't take his eyes off of in chapter 2, that took his breath away in Genesis chapter 2, but first, before he blames her, he blames God. Where did she come from? Oh yeah, I remember. You put her here. Now all of that makes me just want to back up and ask myself this. I wonder, I wonder if every human being doesn't have some whisper coming from somewhere that lands in your head that gives you a reason to say, you can't really trust God. You got reason to be upset with God. You got reason to be mad at God. Is it possible that every one of us, now I could be wrong about this, but is it possible that every single human being could have a whisper echoing from their life in their head explaining to them why they need to be upset with God about something so that they won't trust him? Something that we believe, well, he could have done this and he should have done this, but he didn't do that. Like what? Like maybe you're one of those wondering, where's my happy marriage? Where's the baby I prayed for? Where's the job promotion that I didn't get? Where's the opportunity that never came that I deserve? Why wasn't I born in that country with that family and that history? And why do I have this body and not that body? Why did you let that abuse happen? I mean, why why that addiction stealing my loved one? Why that accident? Why that crime? Why that disease? You know, all these whispers, like little parasites in our brain, eating away at the possibility that God is good, that God can be trusted. That that we should bust through the self-made myth when really, hey, if you're not watching out for yourself, who is? God's not. Hey, why did you let so many hypocrites get in the church? I mean, the story tells us, the story itself from Genesis tells us that after the sinful choice of the woman and the man, that a sense of curses spread across their existence. They came into being threefold curses, essentially, pain in birth, pain in work, and pain in marriage. Striving between wives and husbands in marriage, and then just disappointment in life. So it's like the bottom line of that cursing is this, life is full of disappointment and uh, pain, for which people tend to blame God. And then we tell ourselves, well, you can't really trust him. But there's another lesson. I don't know if anybody's relating to that. But there's another lesson here as well. A lesson about time. Listen, just as in sports, you know, so also in life that we see in sports that every event, every game has a time frame of opportunity. Two halves, four quarters, um, nine innings, 15 rounds, 
18 holes, and then the game's over. You know, time's up. There's no more striving in the competition now. There's no more striving for mastery. There's no more striving for victory. Uh, we see this reality in our sports. It's a reality in life. We also see it in talent competition. We see it in entrepreneurial business. We see it in Shark Tank. I mean, there's a time where whatever the present opportunity is going to be, that if you don't seize it in the moment or a decision is made about it, then what you've got to deal with is the reality that you've been left with. Time's up. There's the reality. So also with life. And what I see Genesis bringing to our front screen today is the opportunity for you to know and share the greatness that God offers. Genesis tells us there's coming a time for each of us when our time of striving will end. And it gets very plain. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. For they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now, I don't know that I'm going to make 120 years. <laughs> right? But even if that's not the case, the point remains. King James Version, God says, my spirit shall not always strive with men. Now that word man there means humanity. It means any person bearing God's image, male or female, young or old, that God, there is coming a time when God's striving will end with you. What's striving? Well, that word is interesting. It means defending, disputing, governing, pleading, quarreling, vindicating. It's kind of what you have to do to make a relationship work. You strive to make something work. And God is saying, as long as we're alive, human beings, as long as you're alive, God will strive to reach each of us with some sense of breakthrough to lift us to his plan and his will and his purpose, challenging our pride that hardens our hearts and that holds us back. Um, so that we can have the opportunity to begin anew. In the beginning, God, every new beginning, every true beginning in Scripture has the God of life and opportunity as its source. But one sure result of sin that we saw a few messages back is death. So mortality is our reality. Mortality is our reality. That's undermined in this verse. And what that means is there's coming a day for each one of us when time's up, game's done, striving is over, and now God is willing to strive as long as we're alive. But when that day comes, the day of striving ends, then where will we be? And so that raises this question. How can we be ready? How can we live to be ready? How can we live to be ready for when the day of striving is done? In fact, I'd like for us just to wonder that together. You don't have to say it out loud, but I'm going to say it again and invite you to, to think about how, how can we live to be ready for when the day of striving is done? Now, who better to answer that question than somebody who died and then didn't? <laughs> and do you know anybody like that? I do. Actually, we're going to hear from somebody like that, John Churchill today, our mission pastor, as he comes to the platform. I don't know if you've ever met John Churchill before, but I promise you, after you hear this story, you will not forget him today because I respectfully call him Pastor Lazarus. You know why? Because in the gospel, there's a story about a guy named Lazarus who died, and then he didn't. 
And so John has got a story to tell, and I would like for you to join me now as we welcome Pastor John to all of our campuses, Kendall, Gable, Pastor John Lazarus Churchill. Thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate that. It's good to be here with you. I'm uh, excited. I normally go down to Kendall, so it's nice to be up here at Coral Gables. I have been the mission pastor for about four years now. And so I want to count, give you a story of what had happened to me on one of my mission trips. On May of 2019, I went down to Nicaragua to visit the missionary family that we support there and, and love there. And I, I had not been with them before, and I really wanted to understand what, they, what ministry they were doing that, down there and how we could help them. It was such an encouraging visit. I got to know uh, much better Chris and Krista Farrington great folks with a beautiful family. And on May 23rd, I returned to Miami. I cannot remember returning to Miami. The last thing I remember was being at the gate in Managua Airport. I don't remember the flight. I don't remember what happened for a couple days later. When I was in U.S. immigration here in Miami, I went into cardiac arrest. My heart stopped, and I went down. There was a female EMT there from Canada who started CPR on me and hit me a couple times with the automated external defibrillator, AED. She did that for about six minutes when the airport fire engine arrived with two, two personnel on scene. One was administering meds, the other was busy doing CPR on me. He did CPR for just about 13 minutes when the fire rescue ambulance arrived. He later, later told me that the whole time he was praying for strength, because they usually can rotate, but there, weren't any, there wasn't anyone for them to rotate with, so he had to keep going. But obviously, and the good news for me is they got my heart going. And as the ambulance was getting ready to depart the airport, my wife Susan was arriving to pick me up. And she got a call on her cell phone, and there was a number that she didn't recognize, so she didn't answer it. But immediately, that same number called again, and she said, hmm, I, I, better, I better answer this one. And, and the person on the other end of the line was a lady who said I'm from, that she was from immigration and that she asked Susan if she knew me and she said yes, she was my wife. And then he said, she said there's been an emergency and he's being taken to Jackson Memorial Hospital ER. And she knew it had to be serious because she knew I would never have let anyone take me anywhere without notifying her. On her way, she called our eldest daughter, Christy, and asked her to call her brother and sister to let them know that something's going on. When she got to the emergency room, she met with the emergency room doctor who had taken care of me. He took her into a room with some very nice chairs. My wife Susan's a registered nurse and has worked in emergency rooms many years. And she knows when a doctor takes you into that kind of room, it's not usually for good news. So the doctor told her what had happened, said I was intubated, that she could go in and see me, and she did. And when she, when, I, when she got in there, I was sedated and had lines going in and out of me everywhere. But the good news is I did progress. They moved me to the ICU. I began to remember a little bit of things in the ICU, maybe the second day. But Susan told me that I would have the same conversation with her over and over. I would ask her, where am I? Why am I here? How did I get here? Then I would complain about being there. And then I said, when am I going to get out? And, uh, and then 10 minutes later, the exact same conversation would happen. And she was a little concerned. She thought maybe there, maybe there had been brain damage for so long being without oxygen. 
she was wondering, beginning to wonder, what is she going to do if I was disabled? While I was in the emergency room, Pastor Raphael Vengia and his wife Liz down at Kendall came to visit, us, visit her in the, in the emergency room, waiting room. They prayed with her. They stayed with her. And I am so thankful for them that they were there for her at that time. The first day in the ICU, Pastor Bill and his wife Lisa came to visit me. I don't remember their visit. I, I assume I had heard that all my kids were coming, and so I asked Bill, I asked Pastor Bill, am I going to die? And he said, no, you're not. I begin to remember things around the second day in the ICU. Long story short, at the end of a week, they installed a pacemaker defibrillator in my chest. If this were to happen again, the, the defibrillator would hit my heart and shock it back into rhythm, and they said, you'll feel like you've been hit in the chest with a bat. As I was leaving the hospital, the doctor who had treated me came and said, I just want you to know that only 5% of people have the outcome that you've had. When I left Jackson, I, I really wanted to find out what had happened. I wanted to understand what had happened. I needed to find someone to say thank you. So I began to seek those who had rescued me. I requested the fire rescue incident report of my incident. And on that, I learned the names of three people who had the three... Uh, firefighters that had transported me to the hospital. I sent them a thank you letter, uh, and I also sent them a, a, a coin from my unit, the 101st Airborne Division when I was in the Army. In the Army, you give a challenge coin to somebody when they, do, when they do a great job. And those guys did just a great job. But that's not the end of the story. So February of last year, 2020, before we got shut down, Christine Zarobon, who's a member here, arranged to, for me to meet my rescuers. So Susan and I went to the far side of the airport, met the fire chief. He transported us through airport security and across the tarmac and to the airport fire station where we had dinner. I, I was so impressed with those, with those men and women. Uh, they, they were dynamite. And I was there to thank them, which I did, but they spent time honoring us. They thanked us profusely for coming. And it was there that I found out that there were other people that were on the scene first. And so then I later sent them challenge coins also. Uh, we had a fantastic meal that they prepared for us. We got to hang out and talk with them until another emergency happened and they all had to go. And I think I was just really surprised. They wanted to take pictures with me. I mean, to me, they were the heroes. If anyone, I need to take pictures with them. But they wanted to take pictures with me. One of them, the guy that did CPR for 13 minutes, his name Robert Williamson, you'll you see him up here. He said at that time that I was the first person in 18 years that had come to fire rescue to say thank you. So if you see a firefighter, thank them. Because they, they may save your life tomorrow. When I told him I'd be telling this story, he said, tears are in my eyes just thinking about that day. So here today is Lieutenant Elvis Rodriguez who transported me from the airport to the emergency room and firefighter uh, Robert Williamson who, saved, who did CPR and saved my life. And can I get you both to please stand up? <laughs> These are my heroes. Thank you very much. Thank you. I have been struck, and you can imagine, I've been struck by the enormity of the incident and how God intervened. 
I mean, I fell in front of a Canadian EMT who just so happened to be in the line at immigration when I was in the line at immigration. I had a prayer warrior, fighter, fighter, asking God for strength, and God gave it to him. And I was really in the right place other than a hospital for this to happen. If, if, you, if you've never noticed at, at MIA, just look everywhere. There are AEDs everywhere. I think you can't go about 20 steps before you find another one. So those were readily available for me. If this had happened 20 minutes earlier, I would have still been on the aircraft, landing, probably wouldn't have made it. If it would have happened about 20 minutes later, I would have been on the Palmetto driving. Susan and I both may not have made it. So that really made me stop and consider why this all happened and what were my lessons learned. So what are my lessons learned from that incident? Well, first of all, life is short. So live each day with purpose. Life is short. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. King David said in Psalm 39, Lord, help me to know how fleeting my time on earth is. Help me to know how limited is my life and that I'm only here but for a moment. What a brief time you've given me to live. Compared to you, my lifetime is nothing at all. Nothing more than a puff of air. I'm gone so swiftly. So too are the grandest men. They are nothing but a fleeting shadow. I don't think there's been a day that has gone by since that incident that I haven't thanked God for another day of living. Before, I really took life for granted. I, I never thought death was going to come so soon. But now I know I am not guaranteed tomorrow. I think in planning your life, there are two mistakes to avoid. First is to spend your whole life thinking about the future that you, you miss the significance of the day, today. And the other is focus so much on today that you forget the significance of eternity, of the future. And the Bible warns against them both. I think there is, a, though, a, a happy medium, a, a balance that can be achieved. And this is it. Live today like it matters for all eternity because it does. Would you read that with me? Live today like it matters for all eternity because it does. Every day of your life has significance. What you do today will make a difference in how you perceive the value of your life when your time on earth is through. And what's more, what you do today will continue to be significant even a thousand years from now. My life verse is 2 Timothy 2.2. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy saying, And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. God wants us to have a godly influence on future generations. And Paul in this verse talks about a four-generational spiritual effect. Paul, the first generation, tells Timothy, the second generation, to pass on what Paul taught him to reliable men, the third generation, who will teach others, the fourth generation. Have you ever thought about your spiritual descendants? Because God wants us to have a godly influence over future generations. I've seen that kind of impact in my physical family with physical generations. My wife's grandfather uh, was a pastor. Her father was a pastor. I'm a pastor. One of my daughter, Christy, her husband's in a chaplain in the army right now. The other daughter, Carolyn, her husband has graduated from seminary. My son is in the army having a godly influence there. And that, that is quite a gospel influence that this grandfather had on his descendants. He set the spiritual tone for future generations. 
I want to have that same kind of impact with my, with my family, with my grandchildren. We have eight and a half grandchildren. Uh, the ninth one is due in August. I always wanted a baseball team, and it looks like I'm going to get it. I'm really excited about that. And after this incident, though, I, I will tell you that I, I view them even different than I did before. I mean, I've always loved them, but now my priority is to leave a godly legacy with them. I really want to invest in them. It's hard for us because all our kids live out of the state or out of the country. Our daughter, Christy, the, the one whose husband's the army chaplain there, signed in Germany. And because of COVID, we can't go there. We were supposed to go last April, but that all got shut down. So what I do is I pray for them regularly. We FaceTime with them when we can. I get to text some of them. But my desire is that they would all come to know Jesus and have an impact in their lives for him. Warren Buffett said, someone's sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. When you help others, when you help them develop Christian character or uh, have a better marriage or to parent more effectively, you are planting seeds for future generations. One of my favorite ministries that I'm involved in is leadership or life coaching of church planters. I recently visited one of the church planters' pastor who I'd coached for two years and it was my first time being there with him in his church. And he read 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the one that we, the four-generational one that we just looked at. He didn't know that that was my life verse. But he said that coaching had made this verse come alive. That I had passed on him wisdom and teaching that he's now using for others. He is a reliable teacher who is coaching others, expanding future generations, and fulfilling his life's purpose. And his word made me so glad that God gave me another day to live my purpose, the purpose that God has for my life. So what kind of shade are you leaving for future generations? Who will be sitting in the shade of your hard work 20 years from now? Or more to the point, will there be shade to sit in? Will you have a spiritual generational impact in the future? Because you are planting those seeds right now. If you haven't already, find someone in the next generation and use your God-given influence to help them become the person that God wants them to be. Plant the seeds now to grow shade trees in the future, in future generations. Joe Nesbo, a Norwegian writer, says, losing your life is not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing is to lose your reason for living. Maybe you wasted yesterday. Maybe you wasted all your yesterdays. But today is yours. Today, you can, have, you can take charge of today and begin doing the things to ensure that you get the most out of this day. And in the process, you will make your future what God wants it to be. The second lesson that I got from my cardiac arrest is look for eternal significance in all that you do. Three brick workers were working and were asked what they were doing. One said, I'm laying bricks. The other said, I'm making $17.50 an hour. The other said, I am building a cathedral for the glory of God. All three were doing the exact same job, but they all had a different perspective. The key to significance is to recognize the eternal value of every little thing that you do. My children, when they were little, my father-in-law would come to visit us. I was in the army, so we were rarely ever very near them. And when he came to visit, he would play catch with my son, Later, he taught him how to play golf. And one day, just a casual conversation, he asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up. And my son said he wanted to be a professional baseball player. 
My father-in-law said, well, that's not an easy thing to do. You'll have to work really hard. Now, John thought that he was saying that he wasn't good enough to do it. But he later spoke at my father-in-law's funeral and said that now he realizes what his grandfather meant was that despite having talents, it still required work to be successful. It was just a casual conversation. But what a great lesson that my father-in-law taught my son. Every day matters. Every moment matters. The details of our life may just seem mundane, but they are filled with eternal significance. We may think that we're just killing time when we're really developing a bond of a relationship. It may seem like just small talk to us, but we could be saying something that will change the trajectory of someone else's life forever. We may think that we're just laying bricks, but in reality, we're building a cathedral for the glory of God. Look for eternal significance in every little thing that you do. I mean, we see Christ doing that all the time. He'd be at a meal with friends, and he'd turn that meal into a life-changing experience. He'd be walking along the road with his disciples and see a tree, and he would say, he would teach a lesson on faith. You want to create a life without regrets? Then understand this. Remember this. There are no throwaway moments. Every day matters. Every moment matters. God has given you one more day to live your purpose. So look for eternal significance in your work, in your words, in your relationships, and in your actions. I was coming back on a mission, from a mission trip when that happened. Why do I go on mission trips? Because God says, make disciples of all nations. That, that is the purpose of all Christ followers. And so my question to you is, when's your next mission trip? Because in the next year, we'll be getting started again. We'd love to have you go on that. Then I want to just thank everyone who has given to our Give Global campaign. It's, it's those funds that we use to support our missionaries overseas. So each dollar we send over there is having an eternal impact across the world. So thank you. Look for eternal significance in everything you do. And my third and final takeaway from all this is servant leadership is an eternal difference maker. A servant leader primarily focuses on the growth and well-being of people and communities that they belong to. And the primary characteristic of a servant leader is humility. Humility doesn't mean that you think less of yourself. It means that you think of yourself less. See the difference? Simply put, humility says, I am not the center of my universe. Therefore, I am not the center of my thoughts. I think about other people than me. I think about other things than me. And that's what those firefighters who saved my life did. Even when tired and exhausted from doing CPR, firefighter Robert Williamson prayed for strength to continue. He didn't have to keep going. I mean, really, after five or ten minutes, I don't think anyone would have blamed him to say, I can't go anymore. But he didn't. He kept going. He put me first above his own comfort. And that's why I'm here today. Jesus was a servant leader. Today we celebrate Palm Sunday. It's the day that commemorates the, when Jesus came into the, to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And he would spend Holy Week there and then die on Good Friday on the cross for us, for our sin. Paul said this in, in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he found, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus not only washed the feet of his disciples, but he suffered and died on the cross for your sin and my sin. Because there is a penalty for our sin, and it's a death. It's spiritual separation from God forever. So Jesus died in our place with our sin to pay the penalty for our death. The prophet Isaiah prophesying about it said this in Isaiah chapter 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That's our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Our sins separated And that's what caused him to have to be crushed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. Well, that that sounds like nowadays, doesn't it? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our sin. He paid the ultimate penalty for our sin, for your sin, my sin. And we can receive that and, and come to know him better and be saved. And so... Have you, I just got to ask, have you received God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ? Because if not, don't waste this significant moment. This can be, this will be the most significant thing you ever do. Take a step of humility and discover greatness. You only live your life one of two ways. You live your life trying to be great without God, or you trust God to make your life one of blessing, of significance, and of purpose. Just because you think less of yourself doesn't mean that God does. I, I, I learned that God has my life in his hands for eternity. I was recently reminded of a story that I'd heard a long time ago. There was a young lady, lady who was dying of cancer, and she knew she wasn't going to make it. So she sat down with her pastor to, and to tell him what she wanted her funeral to be like. She said that during the viewing and during when, the, when she was buried, she wanted to have a fork in her hand. And the pastor looked at her puzzled. A fork? Why do you want to have a fork in your hand? She, and she said this. She said, well, while she was a kid and was at church potluck dinners, and when they were clearing the plates, they would always tell her to keep the fork because the best is yet to come, the dessert. And she wanted people to know that because Jesus Christ was her Savior, the best is yet to come for her life. I could have died that day. You could die tomorrow. But with Christ, the best is yet to come. Each year, except for last year with COVID, there's a sand sculpting contest near Newport Beach, California. Artists create incredible works of art. They create castles and faces and dragons and cars, all built with sand. And thousands of visitors come and ooh and awe about those, those pieces of art all the time. But if you were to visit that same stretch of beach a couple days later... All those magnificent works of art would be gone, all washed away by the tide. Your life doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be washed away and forgotten. You can live a life of significance. God has given me just a little more time to live today like it matters for all eternity because it does. And he's given you time to live like it really matters for eternity because it does. Would you pray with me? Father, you are, you are good.
We sang about that earlier because you, you are good. You love us. You take care of us. I would pray for those of us who are Christ followers here at this time, Lord, help us to live life on purpose. Use us, Lord, to make a difference in the world that we live in, with our neighbors, with our communities, with the world. And then, Lord, I would like to pray for those who don't know you. And maybe, maybe you're here today and you say, you know, I kind of know Jesus, but I don't really know him, not like this, and you'd like to. And I just encourage you to pray something like this. Say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I thank you that you died on the cross for my sin. And I receive you as my Savior. Make me the person that you want me to be. And we pray that in Jesus' name.